Stephanie. And I'm Summer. And you're listening to Broke and Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Okay, so first I'm going to tell you, I interviewed um, Faith Harper, who's, she's a sexologist, and we talked about a lot of stuff about, you know, consent and sex and all this stuff, and I have a point to this, and I'll come back to it in a second, but I'm telling you Uh so you'll remind me to get back to it. So what happened at the bar last night, I'm sitting here talking um, to her, you know, and he walks outside to go talk to somebody outside, right? So like, as soon as he leaves, and it's just the two ladies sitting there, this fool comes up. (laughs) And, you know, and he starts, like, trying to flirt with us or whatever, and we're just kind of, you know, try initially trying politely to, like, you know, okay, we're not interested. Uh-huh. And, of course, we're sitting at the bar, so on um, backless bar stools, right? Uh-huh. And, and he just keeps getting closer, and we're both, like, moving away. Uh-huh. And, and he literally starts, like, rubbing his junk up, like, on my ass. And, oh, um, no. Yeah. Okay, so I move away from him the first time, and because he is, he's pretty, he seems pretty drunk, so I'm like, okay, don't want to escalate a situation with a drunk person that never goes well. So then he moves, and he, he does it more, and I'm like, and I said, and I, so I move completely away from him. So uh-huh. he's still talking and pretending he doesn't notice what he's doing, and you know he fucking does, right? So he does it for a third time, and this, because he, because I moved away so obviously, and he actually says, don't think I don't see you rubbing your ass up on my cock. And I'm like, I ain't rubbing oh. nothing on you. But if you touch me one more fucking time, we're going to have a problem. Uh-huh. So he's like, oh, so that's how it's going to be. And I literally, I, and as soon as I said that, like I finished my, I <laughs> finished my drink in like one big shot because I'm like about to smash him in the face with this glass and I don't want to lose my drink when I do. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> And so at, at that time, actually, he came back in and and I don't, he's like, he could tell something was wrong. He's like between us. And, and I told him, I was like, that, so that motherfucker touches me one more time, I'm going to knock his ass out. Uh-huh. So yeah, so I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with people? First of all, you don't fucking touch people without consent. Yes. You don't be rubbing your genitals up on somebody. I know because that's just a- <laughs> What the hell is that about? And so then I told this story to a a couple of guy friends today. And then I got really irritated because their response was, well, he's just a jackass. You can't ignore guys like that. And I'm like, fuck you. He was... That's sexual assault. Yes. And by every fucking definition. Exactly. I'm like, no, being a jackass was the talking to us after we, you know, we're clearly not interested. That was being a jackass. Or the the guy who hit me up as soon as I walked in, you know, who's like hollering at me, hey, I asked you a question. I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't really care. I'm just going to go get my drink. You know, that's being a little jackass. (laughs) But Uh when you start touching somebody and rubbing up on somebody... No, and I'm a little, I'm a little sorry that I didn't punch him in the face. Or actually, I should have punched him in the dick because that might have helped him remember not to be rubbing it up on people. So anyhow, how that connects in with Faith was, I was, it also made me think because of those conversations with these men who clearly don't get it. And they don't get it partially because they don't have to worry about this as much. Because literally, where could I, I couldn't, I literally couldn't go anywhere. This guy had pulled a bar stool right behind mine and hers, so I couldn't push my bar stool away. And he's directly behind he had moved to the side so I could not get out you know they're they're acting like I'm being excessive and I'm like no I was about 10 seconds away from from hitting him and if my friend had Uh not come back that's where this was gonna go and Uh I and I probably would have went to jail but you know um but anyhow where so that made me start thinking about this whole and I think we've talked about this before I was talking about this with another advocate the other day about these you because you said you know that sexual assault and so I've uh-huh. been thinking, because one thing that's kind of bugged me a little bit is in the interview with Faith, I talked about, um, I mentioned being raped at 14, right? But I called it sexual assault. And and so I've been uh, thinking about, I've been, there is a difference. And I, I wish I had used the more technically correct term. I mean, because technically sexual assault is the broad umbrella term and rape is, yeah. a, sub, is a subcategory of that, a more specific classification yes, of that. Yes, and it's more, it's a more, you know, criminal so right. yeah, absolutely. Right. And like, I, I remember when I started, you know, this whole advocacy thing, like 15 years ago, um, when I first started the peer, um, assist and all of that stuff at that time, basically the, you know, everybody pretty much for the most part understands the concept of rape, right? You know, the lack of consent, whatever, yeah, but see, sexual assault, me off is the, 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 
the guy in the camps, they're not calling it rape, but he put his body part in children's mouths, and that is rape, too. That fucking pisses me off. Technically, that's sodomy. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wish they would use the fucking right term. Use sodomy or use rape, the... but they're not calling it that when it's children. They want to call it sexual abuse. You know what? Um... Touching a child outside of their clothing is sexual abuse. Let's call sodomy sodomy and rape rape. I uh, so what is the legal term to what the, Brock Turner did sticking that stick in that woman's vagina? Is that also sodomy? Um, it, well, it varies by jurisdiction. In most jurisdictions, that would be called some sort of like rape by instrumentation or something like that. Okay. All right, I'm trying um, to fix my words. Well, and it, it's the and that's what I'm getting at is when I when I was you know way back then you know we all kind of understood rape. It's still pretty much the same definition, but sexual assault usually was um, applied to the more serious assaults. You know, attempted rape, molestation. You know, all these forcible assaults. And now you know we're seeing that applied much more broadly and sometimes misapplied, like the. Um, situation that we've discussed before where a woman labeled it sexual assault where he was flirting with her and touched her arm well that's not sexual assault and the mislabeling is making things difficult so i don't know i think these people need to start understanding these terms and be more specific with them obviously myself included because (laughs) i sometimes use words when there are better words um for it but yeah i think like i like using um sarah posted this the other day and it's something like i'm determined to to use to not say you know that i do advocacy work or or um work with you know trauma victims but to say you know we do trauma healing i think that was that was that was huge for me okay um that was a big one. I just, I, I really think, I really think our words are important. I think our words are, are powerful. All right. Today we have Faith Harper. Faith, thank you for coming today. Now your bio says you're a certified sexologist. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody always laughs and says, is that like a real thing? Yes, it's a real thing. Um, <laughs> so it was really interesting for me. I, um, I am a licensed professional counselor. I'm a board supervisor. Like I teach ethics, all this stuff about this profession of mental health, but we really don't get a whole lot of training in human sexuality and human intimacy in our graduate work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that's something that we're really lacking. I know a lot of really good therapists that really don't know anything about that area, and so they end up getting into these situations where they, they don't know how to properly support the clients that are coming to them. And it kind of it's something that I started bumping up into early in my career, people saying, hey, I have questions about polyamory. I have questions about BDSM. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate. I was raised in this very shame-free way. You know, sex is natural. Sex is healthy. We can have conversations about it. You know, humor was used about it. You know, treated in the way that it should be. Right. And so I felt comfortable answering the questions. But I also realized I didn't really know a lot about some stuff. So I would have to go back and do more reading and do more studying. And I and it just became I became the sex check as a therapist. <laughs> Like, you know, you can, you can, you know, I was running groups about healthy sexuality and community mental health, you know, if people were like, oh, we'll go ask Dr. Harper, like she, she can answer that, or at least she won't freak out if you ask. Right. And so I went back and did more studying in that area and earned my uh, postdoctoral certification as a sexologist. So a lot of the work that I do is surrounding couples and intimacy and just all the ways that that can look like and be normal like okay. I have these very wide margins of normal and even just taking the shame out of people's experiences and their desires is so important and there's so far one of the biggest cities in the country I'm in San Antonio and there's only a few of us that do this even being in San Antonio and that's that's a shame yeah. so it is really about just what you know the expression of human sexuality and what that looks like and then how to help people when they're either having issues or they think that they're having issues because what's normal and healthy for them is something that culture tells them is not okay. <laughs> right. And there's that internalized shame. So, right. So before I called you, I watched. I was watching the um, clip of the TED Talk on your website. Yeah. And I really liked how you started with a definition of sex. Oh, we have a problem in this country. This notion of sexy is a really big deal. 
We're inundated with these sexualized images all the time, but when it comes to actually talking about sex, we don't. We don't even know what it is. I mean, I looked up the definition of sex for this talk, and sex is defined as the act of engaging in sex. I didn't know what to do with that. So I thought we should start there. If we're going to have pragmatic discussions about sex, we should have a pragmatic definition of sex. And this is important because for human beings, sex is way more than a mechanism of procreation. Sex is a consensual act between one or more people involving stimulation of the vagina, vulva, clitoris, penis, testicles, or anus for the purpose of pleasure and social and emotional connectedness. We are all, by nature of being human, sexual beings. No matter what sex acts we are capable of or choose to engage in, we're sexual beings. And most of us do have sex, if you're using that definition, right? Well, and and the funny thing about that is we have a lot of dialogue about that and a lot of discomfort about using the correct words from the underwriters for our tenor San Antonio. Really? really Yeah, like, do you really have to use the word vagina? Well, I'm not... (laughs) I, I'm, I'm, did you want me to call it the honey pot? Like, I'm right. Like, that seems like a strange <laughs> setting to have qualms about that, to be honest, because the whole right. point is supposed to be this openness and education, right? Right. But still the South and still worries. And, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm a grown-ass woman and I'm an academic and I know my setting and I'm not going to push people. I mean, if the word vagina makes you uncomfortable, I'm super sorry. But I'm not going to be, you know, overtly, you know, just really in your face with stuff. And I mean, you saw it. It's, it's right. very, it, there's nothing about it that's very, very challenging. No, there's but not. But even just having the fight of let's talk about what sex is because it's so many things. It can be um, one person, two people, many. And it's about stimulation for pleasure of these parts of our bodies that give us pleasure when they're stimulated. And even just discussing that, and I have conversations all the time, solo sex is not an interior form of sex. It's wonderful. Um, And just, you know, opening and broadening that up, because there's a lot of people that can't have penetrative intercourse for whatever reason, um, or don't want to for whatever reason, and opening up and realizing that we can have these active, healthy sex lives with ourselves, with others, in all of these different ways. And so just putting that out there from the beginning and, and I do have to give one of the, the underwriter who was really concerned about it came up after the talk gave me a hug and she's like that was gorgeous you you that was really really good and thank you for being committed to doing it the way you wanted to do it and not letting me win so uh, <laughs> that's great because it really was yeah. good but again that goes back to this idea of secrecy and shame and all the things that make us uncomfortable about sex rather I wouldn't have a job if we had dialogue about our human desires. Um, So, I mean, it worked out well for me. I have a job, but um, it's unfortunate. If we have these conversations, if we taught kids to communicate with guy statements in kindergarten, I wouldn't have a job. If we taught people that their bodies and enjoying their sexuality was not a shameful thing, I wouldn't have a job. Like, the things that we should just do as human beings, I'm having to go back and help people re-explore, and it shouldn't have to be that way. Right, and I mean, that was kind of how this podcast came to be was um, because I do that, and of course I'm not qualified <laughs> as you are in any area <laughs> other than law, but... Okay, well, you're seeing it in law, and you're yes. seeing stuff coming up that they're saying, you know, the, these laws about we need to prevent sex trafficking, right. and so people can't advertise, and how that's affecting massage therapists and body workers, and how it's we're made, still using right. law to shame sexuality. Exactly. So you're very qualified because you see it too. <laughs> right. And I do um, a lot of peer work for um, domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. And so we do a lot of this conversations about shame and, you know, that's why we cover, we cover it up and we hide it and, and sometimes we stay out of shame, you know, okay. and all of these things. And that's what I've been doing that for a few years now. And this um, podcast kind of grew from that um, one individual who has, you know, been in a couple of these. She kept pushing me to do this because the whole idea is to push that dialogue back 
to, you know, we do a lot of triage and, you know, the crisis management, but we really need to open up these broader conversations. And like you said, teaching these, teaching it to our next generation as small children and, you know, removing the shame. So that's kind of what the premise of this is, is to, and it's not just about sex, about anything, you know, to push back against shame and stigma. Um, And one thing that I deal with a lot, and like I, like I said, I am not a qualified mental health professional. So I'm constantly (laughs) trying to encourage people to go see qualified professionals if they can. And one thing that I've mentioned on the podcast um, for anybody who's heard the episodes before this is, you know, like I said, I am a sexual assault um, survivor. My first um, orgasm per manual stimulation was when I was four years old in an abusive situation. The first one from penetrative stimulation was in the context of rape. That fucks with your head. Uh And I, you know, and I hear that from a lot of survivors. And so then not only do they have the overall overarching shame about sex, they also have all these issues about being a survivor and the shame attached to that. And they're afraid to talk about it. And they Uh can't tell their partner, this is why I don't enjoy this. What do people do about that? Well, I mean, one of the big things is even just being able to talk through that experience. And I've worked with so many people who have had similar stories where because they had this you know, physiological response that that's somehow that they wanted it or they shouldn't be as upset about it or they have somehow done something wrong because their body reacted the way bodies do. Right. And that adds to everything else and is usually the part that comes out last. Like when other work has been done around it and we have good coping skills around it, we can talk about it without complete activation. That's usually the part they're like, and then there's this. Right. And even just having somebody um, and people with lived experience are just as important part of the treatment team as clinicians of saying, hey, you know what, that's super, super normal and I'm here with you. And then, you know, hearing it from somebody with lots of letters after their name. (laughs) <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, well, if, if if this person with all these fancy letters says the same thing, maybe it's true. Right. Um, and just like you said, just the talking about it, it's the silence that equals the shame. Mm. Like, th- this happens, and this is okay, and this is what bodies do. But a lot of people aren't lot- aware of that. I had to explain, yeah. explain it to a social worker it. just... Yeah. This earlier this week, actually, and she was shocked. She had never heard this, and like, you know, you're almost thirty, and you've never heard this. That's a problem. Yeah. Which also goes back to our lack of training in our clinical program, and the fact that we don't have these conversations, and there's not people coming out saying, "Hey, this was my response to to my assault." And that, I mean, and that is true for so many other issues. I had a, a I have a client who is bipolar, very very stable, but as you know, he's, he gets a little bit more manic, his sexual interests get broader. Okay. And he was very anxious about that. Like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm experiencing this, I'm experiencing this. I'm like, well, that's super, super normal. As we become more hypomanic, you know, sexuality is fluid across the lifespan anyway. And as we become more hypomanic, our interests sort of get a little bit bigger too, what you're experiencing. And he, and he, that's really all he needed. Oh, that's normal? Totally normal. Oh, okay, cool. You know, right. and sometimes we just need that. We just need to hear this is not like I'm alone in my fucked upness. <laughs> that this is a very normal experience. This is what bodies do. This is what brains do. And it's okay. And if we can talk through that, a lot of the healing can come in that experience of, you know, sharing these stories. And then also, because I give people, you know, exercises and things to do, mm-hmm. which help if they're struggling in their intimate relationships after abuse. But even saying, okay, so this is the response that I'm having right now. And this is why also it makes exercises work better mm-hmm. makes you more likely to try and do things you know that otherwise like I don't like this it feels icky and gross because I really hadn't worked through everything yet mm-hmm. and so the getting better part works so much better too the, the book of mine that I wrote that's been doing super super well is about how the brain wires in a trauma response and why it very much is an injury of the nervous system there is a it is a physical wiring component to this and people are like oh now I get it now like the therapy shit makes sense and getting all these things make sense because I understand how the brain is working and that came from so many years of saying okay let me let me give you like five minutes of brain science let me understand help you understand where your response is coming from and people are like well then why didn't anyone tell me that before a lot of people don't understand it well they don't know how to explain it simply and the book came from that place and the book's done really really well because other people needed to hear that too like this is what's going on this is the why and so this is why when I say try this, 
there's mm-hmm. a reason behind it and this is what we're doing to re-help your, your brain develop a new normal and then understanding how people's responses are and then we can sort of create strategies around that um, you know there's a lot of people who are sexual abuse survivors some people don't want to ever have sex at all right um, and or some, some of people, us become well, hypersexual right exactly <laughs> and some people because it feels like this re-empowering if I'm saying yes exactly and now it's okay and the body's really still saying no and they're, or they're very disconnected from the experience and so we have to do work around that um, I had someone who would she would have whatever sex her husband wanted but she wasn't engaged in the process oh, okay. and he was like I want to have sex with you not on you I want to do something that is for you and she was just like you know what do whatever you want and he's like no I want to do whatever you want but because of her abuse history she didn't know what she wanted Right. and we were having this conversation, and I use a lot of sensate focus exercises, but adapt them to people's needs. And he said something, and like it was an offhand thing, like, I can't even compliment your body. I'm never even allowed to compliment anything other than your face. And I'm like, okay, now I have an idea. Now I have something. Are you comfortable with your face? And she said, yeah. I said, well, why don't we set the sensate focus exercises where you just put a pillow in your husband's lap and he strokes your face? Nothing else doesn't touch anywhere else on your body, just strokes your face. Mm-hmm. And her eyes kind of lit up, and she's like, that sounds really great like I would love that Hmm. and he was like you you, like I can do that for you like he was so excited to have something he could do that was for her to yeah to reconnect through touch and not be about him just having sex on her and well good for him for wanting that because there's a lot of men who are are perfectly happy just (laughs) doing it to you instead of with you and those aren't the guys that I work with I'm I'm, (laughs) you know I I actually work with a lot of straight men Mm -hmm. Um, and of course they're the ones that are actively seeking out therapy because they don't want to be that guy they don't want the toxic masculinity and said that so affirming that we're going in a good place in the world that all these men are like hey how do I do this how do I not be a dick you know Um, (laughs) that's always a good goal (laughs) yeah well and you know I have conversations with men too about how like they need feminism more than I do and even my gun type you know (laughs) very republican dudes when I you know when I start explaining all that to them they're just like oh okay yeah right on but being able to like understand where the response is coming from and then Mm -hmm. adapt the healing strategies around that and again that's stuff that we aren't teaching right in graduate school programs and I mean the information's out if you're doing this work you have to really actively seek out training in that area and do a lot of reading and you know, find your tribe in um, in finding these really good strategies that work a lot of the other therapists that I work, they send people to me when it bumps up against that because they're like I don't know anything about that I mean I could read what you're saying but I don't know how to adapt that and work with that and I'm uncomfortable with the conversations because of my own shit okay and that's that's a bummer so you know for your your listeners who are saying yeah my stuff is really very much about sexual intimacy is finding a therapist who does a lot of work in that area you don't have to have a post doc but there are people that have done a lot of reading and work and do specialize in that area and you can find that information on their on their website or even you know there's people that are certified sex coaches and intimacy coaches and stuff that can be very very helpful and just comfortable with the conversation and open to going I don't know but I know somebody who does let me staff that and can work with those areas that we have a lot of shame around so what does a sex coach do they do a lot of the the training on that and the psychoeducation around that without being licensed okay. clinicians. Oh, okay. Um, and if they're good, they know what their lane is. You know, no different from a paralegal knowing what they can do for you versus what is actually your job. Right. Um, I, I work with a lot of life coaches and stuff who will contact me saying, okay, I just realized this is deeper than I thought. They really need some trauma therapy. Okay. This is now, this is out of my lane. And, but sometimes people just really need a lot of psychoeducation and, and information, and that can be a benefit. And then we also have people who do the body work, you know, surrogate partners and people who do, who are very extensively trained and certified to help people through it in a physical way that a therapist can't do because we don't do hands-on work. So there is a wide range of people out there that can really, really help with those intimacy-involved issues, um, depending on what their training is and what their, their scope of practice is. You mentioned touch, and mm-hmm. that was something that you talked about in that talk as well. Can you kind of overview that the theory you were talking about with the touch? Yeah, I mean, we're all hardwired for touch. I mean, we absolutely need it to survive. Um, one of the examples that I give is King Frederick 
second was really, really curious how language developed mm-hmm. back in his day. And he was like, is this something that we're born with or something that we develop? Which obviously we know it's something we develop, but mm-hmm. he didn't. Right. He didn't back then. And so he decided to do an experiment where they had these infants and they took them away from their mothers. And how they thoughtful. did not. They, <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, it's like we're doing that today in 2018 yes. or something. Um, yeah, history repeats itself. But anyway, I'll get off my soapbox for a minute. Um, they had they had these nurses that were they all of their their physical needs were cared for. So he thought like they were fed, they were changed, they were kept clean, but they weren't talked to. Like they weren't you know carried and cuddled and talked to and cooed to the way we do to babies. Because he wanted to see, will they start spontaneously speaking, or okay. will they not know language? Well, his experiment failed because all the babies died. Because even though they were being fed and kept clean and all the things that we theoretically need to stay alive, we also need touch and connection. And we now know that all the feminist psychology theories of the 70s are right. We are hardwired to connect. And so touch is such an important part of our connection. And I'm not even saying just sexual touch right there's healing touch there's Mm -hmm. romantic touch there's sensual touch and so one of the first things I do when we're doing like sensei focus type exercises have people think about what all those layers of touch and mean to them because I'll have people come back saying actually we're doing a lot of sexual touch but I realized that I was missing the sensual stuff and I needed more of that that was missing for me and so breaking down like what those things mean for them and then and then so adapting our touch exercises around that. And sensate focus and mine sort of trauma informed um, adaptive because that's my background was trauma therapy. Okay. Uh, I'm so much fun at parties. I talk about trauma and sex. So having to adapt it around that and um, it, it is really it's very much people like oh so it's like massage I'm like yeah but it's not like massage in undergrad where somebody gives you massage and you're supposed to put out (laughs) the point is to re-engage through touch and the end the end goal is not actually sex but when you're the giver in that exercise really connecting to your own body and your enjoyment of the experience of touching your partner's body and then you take turns doing that on separate days and if you feel relaxed comfortable and want to have sex that's great if you're like that was lovely now I want to roll over and fall asleep that's great there it's not okay we're going to do this and then have sex the touch is the goal and and being able to set up boundaries so for people who have those abuse histories of saying these are places that I don't want to be touched or um, I don't want you to use an oil or a lotion the greasy feels gross to me Um, use any powder or to be able to to define and verbalize their boundaries and have them respond and then really focus on being the receiver and enjoying that experience and then also being the giver and enjoying the experience of touching and appreciating your partner's body. And people that like that felt really silly. It felt really weird to me. And I'm like, I I know, I know it's weird. It's fucking weird. You're paying me to have you do weird shit. I got it. (laughs) But, you know, a few times in they're like, oh, now I'm getting it. (laughs) But we have this idea that it should be this intuitive, romantic, beautiful thing. And we're going to run across a field of flowers and slow motion to each other as the credits roll. Damn those romantic comedies. Yes, it is. That is not sex. Um, I have never had it work that way, and I'm good at it. Um, so sometimes it is a, a process that we have to engage in of relearning each other's bodies and communicating in a different way and breaking it down and having to rewire connections that have been fucked up, whether it be cultural messages or abuse, and having to rewire those to have a good experience again. And then it does become more intuitive, and you can run in slow motion to each other if you want to. <laughs> Once you've done the work, but a lot of times we have to do the work first. Right. Now, you mentioned polyamory earlier. We actually yeah. did talk about polyamory quite a bit in episode three, um, which was completely unplanned, but it turned out great. So when people come to you and talk about polyamory, um, do you find that one of their primary hesitations is about the cultural messaging? Because having been in poly relationships, I think that was our biggest problem, honestly, was the um, social stigma and being being afraid to tell people because people don't take it very well. Yeah, and and they don't understand it and they see it somehow as a threat to their monogamy. Like somehow me eating bacon is a threat to you being vegan. Like it doesn't, it's not. And again, that takes in, and also polyamory and BDSM being the two that people have a lot of shame and stigma around that they're having to work through of just 
normalizing that, talking about the research, talking about where polyamory comes from. Essentially, when we were nomadic people, polyamory made sense for survival of the species. Um, as we started to settle and you know, grow shit and be in the same place. Um, that's how I understand anthropology. That's a very technical definition. We grew shit and stayed in the same place. Right. Then monogamy made more sense for survival of the species. I don't know but that that's necessarily true because uh, my tribe is Choctaw and even with the, mm-hmm. once we became sedentary, we um, still openly practiced polyamory. Yes. But I think well, I possibly it's, it's it, because you were tracking lineage through the mother, so paternity of the children didn't matter. So you could fuck whoever right. you wanted and nobody cared. <laughs> Right. Oh, and I've got a funny story about that, too. But, okay. I mean, but that that's exactly what happened. It, it theoretically made sense, so a lot of people did it, but in terms of evolution and how the brain works and our desire for those kinds of relationships didn't really change. Um, so about 50% of people are still wired for polyamory. Um, and I've got hilarious stories about that. My, my son's dad was white, and he did not understand why my brother had so much say in the raising of my son. Like, well, because he's a known relative, and you are not. <laughs> in you know, in terms of Choctaw culture. So, right. you know, and because even though settling down made theoretical sense for survival of the species, it still wasn't our wiring. And so culturally, a lot of people still didn't practice it. And a lot of people still really crave polyamory because that, that's their wiring and that's how their brains work. And it's really about a 50-50 split. So that's why some people are just really hardcore monogamy um, and some people are not. And it's not a bad a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's bad, and I just can't be happy with one person, and you have to do what's right for you, and you also have to do what's right for the relationship. I right. have people that are poly, but they're like, it's not good for this relationship, so I'm choosing not to do that. That's part of who I am, and right. I accept that, but for this relationship, that would not be okay. So you can also be poly and decide that in this particular relationship and circumstance, that's not acceptable. And I think that Choctaw have done a lot of that, too. There are plenty of people that were still monogamous because oh, yes. that's what they want to do. Exactly. But culturally, the polyamory was still okay, and like you mentioned, just how we raise our children was very much about that that's a possibility um who you were saying dad is we don't know if that's true or not right um, and you know and the big thing with polyamory is just the negotiation and the navigation of it i see people who do it very very successfully because they're super open they very much attend to their primary relationship and they you know they do things that are are safe and affirming for everybody involved versus I'm just going to go do whatever the fuck I want, peace out. Um, and when I see people bump into problems is when they stop doing that part, when they stop having the open, honest dialogues and talking about the jealousy issues and negotiating these roles in their lives. That's where the, it's, it's typically not the polyamory. Right. It's the, the lack of, of healthy discussion about it. Somebody's jealous and resentful and they're not, and they're like, well, then you just have to get over it rather than working through those, those issues. And there are people sometimes that the relationship is failing, and so they think polyamory is going to fix it, and that's <laughs> obviously not going to work. I'm like, if you wouldn't have a kid to try and save the relationship, don't get a girlfriend right. to try and save the relationship. Adding more like, variables does not make the relationship more stable, ever. <laughs> right. In fact, polyamory is difficult to do. I mean, it's, it's fun, and it's worth it for so many people, but it's going to take a lot of time and energy to do things well. So you have to be committed to not just, well, hey, I get to go out, but I have to attend to two people's emotional content and physical needs and all these other things. And I'm going to have to have all these conversations that we're not taught to have in our culture. And you're going to have to do a lot of fucking introspection and work and jealousy work. Even poly people still get jealous. You know, there's also that, well, if you're polyamorous, then you don't get jealous. Sure, you do. Everybody gets jealous. But how do you work through that? I mean, and all that stuff comes up. I have people that I've worked with for a long time. They don't come in a lot, but maybe once or twice a year because something pops up that they want to handle in a healthy way mm-hmm. because it's something to do with anything with their relationship, but especially my poly people. Like, we were doing really, really well, and then this thing came up with this, this other partner that we have, and, and so we need to handle that differently. I have this ongoing conversation with um, well Stephanie, the co-host on the podcast, actually, um, because she is a um, <laughs> she calls herself a serial monogamist um, mm-hmm. because <laughs> so we we discuss um, 
I, I, I'm not, I guess, technically poly. I guess it depends on your defin- on the definition of poly because nobody seems to have a consensus on what the definition actually is. Because some people would say I'm poly. Some people would say I'm just single. Mm-hmm. Because I tend to prefer friends with benefits arrangements mm-hmm. because to me, friendships are, uh, and I think part of this is a cultural component, friendships are deeper, more, per- more permanent relationships than romantic partners. Mm-hmm. And I just happen to have sex with my friends sometimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But once we no longer have sex, we're still friends, you know, because yeah. we're like family. But If they can do that without getting butt hurt, it depends on the guy um I've had good experiences with and I but I, I think part of it's also I'm very honest and upfront mm-hmm. in the beginning like okay if we're gonna do this I'm not gonna play with it you know <laughs> yeah. you can't and go I getting mad about it or we're just not gonna do that so we have this conversation about monogamy a lot and I, I understand some people like like her pref- just prefer monogamy right mm-hmm. but I feel like the so the social context though like there are a lot of people and I judge this a lot <laughs> by a lot of the married men who hit me up um, because mm-hmm. I end up being their therapist, which is weird, but okay. <laughs> and is that they would actually like to be poly or, you know, at least explore or more open sexually even. But the social uh, messaging is that they can't be like monogamy is required. The the sexual mm-hmm. ex- exclusivity is required or you don't love me. So mm-hmm. their options are to either sneak around to get their needs met or to be deprived in that way because they can't be open. Is there mm-hmm. any hope in there being a shift in that to where <laughs> socially it becomes more acceptable to be open and not have that problem. I think that it, it has been. And of course, you know, I'm seeing it because I, I live and work down on the margins. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'm a little bit more hopeful in that regard. But I see more and more people having those conversations and yeah. being more open about it. And we're seeing more uh, positive stuff about it. I, I just tweeted an article about it. And it was in like a, a bride magazine about polyamory. But they made it like this new thing. Like millennials have discovered polyamory. <laughs> polyamory and avocado toast and I'm like no sweetie sit down Um, (laughs) how inventive we millennials are (laughs) yes um, avocado toast is fucking delicious so thank Um, (laughs) y'all and and so there's stuff out there they're Mm -hmm. making it seem newer than it is right obviously ancient but we are starting to have more dialogue about it as I mean I, I know in some ways the pendulum has swung far to the right because we're having you know we get marriage equality and then we get Trump you know that's pretty <laughs> typical as people feel dif- you know uncomfortable about these big changes and we get this pullback the pendulum but one swing of the big changes that I am seeing is more interest and acceptance of polyamory to the point like when, when I get somebody when I get a couple that comes in after an infidelity and I'm just like do you want to be monogamous I mean did this infidelity come because you really want to be polyamorous because that's a whole other conversation like you didn't do it well obviously but if that if that's gonna if that's something that you're doing it because you have that need to fulfill we need to have that conversation because you can't you know we can't kind of fix this infidelity and this happens again later so that's one of the first questions I have and I always kind of get this blink you know mouth agape response that I even ask that um, which surprises me but I mean in terms of like you said what's the definition of polyamory I love the ethical sluts definition and it's just kind of any larger experience of partnership because some people say well if you swing that's not polyamory it has to be you know another committed secondary relationship or whatever and they use it to be more open to having multiple partners and multiple experiences whatever that look like I know some people that are probably more emotionally polyamorous Mm -hmm. that they don't have sexual intimacy outside of their relationship but they're allowed that the emotions and the flirting and the texting and that's good for their primary relationship but actually having sex with somebody else is not okay mm-hmm. so there's so many ways of doing it and negotiating it that people have found work for them in their situation and I know a lot of people say well that's not polyamory but it is because the emotional component can be just as powerful if not more so than the physical intimacy and for some people it's like you better not love them you better not like them you better not kiss them on the lips but you can fuck them all day long because that works better for them I mean, I mean, it's, it's all about everybody's individual needs and having that having that met. And I know, especially for men who are, you know, poly-hearted and they're in a monogamous relationship with a woman, they also have all those shame messages about, well, this is just guys do, men are just fucking whores, right. obviously, you need to, you know, correct yourself versus saying, hey, I have 
these these urges and these things that work better for me and I want to have those conversations and finding ways to negotiate that which doesn't necessarily mean blowing the relationship wide open but figuring out how to have those needs met and we're having an honest conversation about it working with somebody who is not going to shame my experience and that is so powerful to be able to do that Um, and I've seen people like have to very much baby step themselves into opening the relationship one person really wanted it the other person wasn't sure lots of jealousy stuff but working through that and being able to open a relationship where one person didn't feel resentful and the other person feel guilty and I've seen people do it very successfully Um, and it's fucking hard but it's amazing when people are that open and vulnerable with somebody that they love to say this is what I want and it's not about you it really isn't it's not that you're a failure or you're not doing things right for me this is just about my wiring and I'm going to be a better and happier human being if I have these needs met and don't feel shitty about it and not doing it in shitty ways because doing it behind your back is hurting you far more. So what happens when they're, when the partner isn't open to working on anything? Like, you know, I mean, we're in the Bible. I live in the Bible belt. <laughs> Me too. So there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, religious shaming and I hear, okay. and there's one, one person in particular that comes to mind, but I've heard the same basic story over and over again from college. They, uh, you know, they love each other, great marriage, great relationship for the most part, had a good sex life prior to getting married, got married, and now I've got you. I don't have to have sex with you anymore because there's the internalized shame of women aren't supposed to want sex and all of this, right? So she doesn't ever, doesn't really actually want sex because of the, she's internalized that. So now he's in a situation where he's not getting his needs met. And I mean, and when I say sexless, they might have sex once, twice, maybe three times a year. And, you know, for years, this has been an ongoing situation of trying to talk about it, trying to figure out, and he wouldn't want it took him years to start seeking sex outside the relationship. He doesn't mm-hmm. actually want sex outside the relationship. He wants sex with his wife, but he can't get yeah. sex on a regular basis with her. But mm-hmm. they've gone to the church. They've gone to family members. Everybody says, you're married to her. You just have to deal with this. And if you mm-hmm. do anything to change this, then you're a horrible person. So what mm-hmm. do people do in that situation? Because the social messaging is actually so damaging and mm-hmm. it doesn't encourage them to you know, work together and negotiate to to actually make sure everybody's needs are met and they're happy. But they don't want to leave the relationship because everything else is good. It's good, right. Like, they're they're married to their best friend. Their best friend doesn't want to have sex with them. Yeah. Yes. And I I see that. I see that so much here. And then we have the added layer, too, of I've seen work with men who, so rather than turning outside their marriage, they're using porn. Mm -hmm. And then they're they're, um, they're accused of being a porn addict. And he's like, I can't do anything right. Like, she doesn't want to have sex with me. Okay. I mean, so I'm going to have solo sex. Now you're a porn addict. No, you're not. And there's no such thing as porn addiction anyway. You could have a problematic use of sex or porn or licorice or shoes or anything, but porn itself is actually not an addiction. Like, you know, so we, we do set people up and it's like, what, so all my orgasms belong to my partner and I'm only allowed three of you with them. You know, it's so toxic to everyone involved so not only like in your situation is the man hurting and wanting this better uh, connection with his partner his partner has been shamed away from her own sexuality right which i feel bad for her for that because it means she's missing that too she probably doesn't realize what she's missing but she is right and you know and and unless she's you know sort of ace or gray or dummy which it happens but it's a fairly small part of the population Mm -hmm. um and i know plenty of people that are demisexual that still have active and happy sex life with their partners because they make effort in that regard because they know now what does demi mean i forget um so ace is or or, um ace asexual are people who it's kind of the third orientation who are genuinely not interested in sex Mm -hmm. um and it's not because of a trauma background or something but they're just really not wired for it Mm -hmm. um and then demisexual are people that they have to have a very very strong emotional connection before they get turned on um which is really a lot of people to a certain extent but for people that are demisexual they really really need the emotional connection and the see safety. i think that's what stephanie is that's yeah. why she's the monogamous because she needs she needs a, a good relationship first before she can right. have sex and that's why she cannot understand me at all <laughs> and you're like it's so sex um, <laughs> right exactly you know, and, 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 
Right, and all of those experiences are okay. And then the gray sexuals are people that get turned on in certain circumstances, and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily about emotional closeness, but they really don't crave or want sex on the regular. Um, a lot, there's a kind of a running joke in the AIDS community that why would we have sex when we can have cake? Cake is delicious. Oh, cake and is like, amazing. And not had good sex? And they're like, have you not had good cake? Like, they just don't, it just doesn't. And can I get both combined? Want. Because I think that would be heaven. <laughs> Totally doable. Uh, so just lay down like a plastic shower curtain so you don't get frosting everywhere. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's just this genuine, this just doesn't do anything for me. And that's right. not related to cultural messages or anything else. It's just people's wiring. They may still want romantic relationships. They may have a headache and still masturbate because, you know, the orgasm helps. But it's just not their go-to thing. Okay. It's just, you know, it's just not really so much on the menu for them. So some people are genuinely like that, but I have found people who are like that and aware of it still attend to their relationships because they haven't, their partner has a need. Mm -hmm. Um, Sounds like more what you're talking about are people that have been really disconnected from their own experience as a sexual person. Um, I do a lot of work in my practice when people have those experiences. And this also goes for people who are LGB, Mm -hmm. who have been told that they're wrong and bad and immoral or um, being who they are is my dad is a a Roman Catholic deacon and an ecumenical Catholic priest so and talk talk very weird combination that is an Um, interesting combination (laughs) I know right well he married an Irish girl so the Catholicism went along with it but having sort of those talk talk morals and cultural norms and added to Catholicism but sort of taking it as this big goddess religion type thing that I, I tell them like the reason that I'm a professional perv is because you are you know that right like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it so uh, be, so I grew up like you know really knowing the catechesis but from this broader perspective of what religion and spirituality really should be and you know and my mom was a uh, you know a spiritual director and so it came from this religion and spirituality can be something that's very, very beneficial. It doesn't have to be shaming. So I'm able to have conversations with clients around that, saying, here's another perspective. I'm not telling your church is wrong or bad or your values are wrong or bad, but this is what I was raised with. This is my understanding of what this Bible verse means. And being able to work through that with somebody who can sort of be, rather than just saying, well, your church is wrong and stupid, stop. Um, (laughs) That's not going to help you. (laughs) Right, because I think we'll be there, and we have we have these intersectional identities. We have this identity of this of our church identity, but then also being sexual beings. And you can't take away aspects of people's identity any more than well. You all need to stop being talk talk. Yeah, that's not going to work too well. Yeah. So being able to have the dialogues around that, and can they make peace with certain aspects of that, and in in to be able to bring in another aspect of themselves. And a lot of times people can. And then, like you said, sometimes people can't. And then you have choices to make in the relationship. Do I stick this out and do things on the down low and find a way to live with that? Do I use a lot of porn and try not to get in trouble for that? You know, how do I how do I navigate that? I, I don't want a divorce. So how do I figure this out with somebody who's not willing to have the conversation? And that's individual for everybody. And I always hope that people are willing to have the conversation. And it's helpful to be able to have that conversation with somebody who can speak the language. You know, my dad did grow up Church of Christ. So he can definitely speak to that as well, but then coming in from the other perspective of having this bigger expression of what God's love is and what how humans interact with each other. You said you, you saw my TED Talk. He called me right after it. They were watching the live stream, mm-hmm. and, and he was laughing because the story I tell about him and my mom is true. I love that true. story. <laughs> yeah, and I can share it with your audience. But he said, he's like, I love that you told that story, and I love that, like, like you didn't even have to, like, embellish it. And he said, hey, if you're doing any other talks and you need me to do something curvy, so you need a story, just tell, tell me and I'll hook you up. <laughs> See, that's how I was raised. I was raised in a family that were, even though we did have, because I'm a preacher's kid in an evangelical-leaning family. Um, so we had the, uh, you know, the religious shaming in the church. But I also had very, very Choctaw family. And so, yes, we we were open. There was openness and comments like that all the time. So I think that's why I can talk to anybody about anything now. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. why and, hide and, and lie about this stuff? It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, just 
saying, you know, being able, I like, I didn't have to go figure that out for myself later. That was very much a blessing to have a family where those conversations were open. Um, when my brother married his husband, my father performed the ceremony. Aww. You know, and so you can not, you don't have to lose one aspect of your identity to, you know, make somebody happy or to control another. We have these big expansive lives and can do all of that. But, um, you know, so if you're, if any of your, your listeners go back and check out the podcast, they'll see the story. But the short version is we were just talking about just the grace of humor is what the story is about and how open conversations and using humor can really, really help. My mom passed recently of her cancer, but she lived with it for many, many years, but was pretty sick in order to manage it, had to take chemotherapy, you know, pretty regularly. And I was up in California for her birthday and she'd had a great party and had a good time, but, you know, got hit pretty hard because her body was already pretty tired. And she was kind of, like, she was shaking, and she was really struggling to get in the car, and you could tell she was embarrassed by it. Not that anyone was upset or pushing her. Like, her own internal, I hit my wall, and now I'm holding everybody up embarrassment. And she's kind of shaking and trying to get in the car, and, you know, and then my dad just turns to her, and, and he's like, I know, baby, I know. You want it. You want it bad. You're shaking for it, girl, but you're just going to have to wait till we get home because the kids are in the car, girl. That's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how that was just, first of all, just, you know, the epitome of, of their 40-plus years marriage, but made her feel better was a, a fun way of just showing that he, you know, they're still sexual beings, even though all these other things were going on. And it's just indicative how my dad is. <laughs> uh, and if we could just, you know, have those kind of open conversations, there wasn't a lot of depth or seriousness to it. And... But it just made the whole situation for her better, and it was cute. You know, if we did more of that in the world, we would not have nearly the problems that we have. I agree. Just be more open. And I, I, So, have you seen this um, meme, or I guess it's actually a screenshot of somebody's post that's going around about uh, <laughs> the clitoris? <laughs> calling it the devil's oh doorbell. My God, the devil's doorbell. I love that. Okay, so I'll read it since I, because I don't know I, that everybody's seen it. It says, "Girls who masturbate, the clitoris is not meant for self pleasure. It's meant for creating a child, you morons. Do you know why you feel like garbage after you masturbate? Do I? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's because I, never have. I, you know, that's because your clitoris is sending bad chemicals to your brain. By touching yourself, you are killing your body. That's the devil's doorbell, and if you keep pressing it, soon enough he will answer. First of all, I'm gonna slam that door shut because I'm not done, and I'm just gonna keep ringing it, okay? But <laughs> what's your comment on that? Because I've been loving the <laughs> responses to this. <laughs> I had I had so many people tag me in that <laughs> I will anything going around about sex everybody says to me you probably have the same experience you know like yeah. we're, we're always we're always the slut friend of any group we're in right of course <laughs> um, yeah and it was just like of course there's obviously like apparently you don't understand anatomy um, but then even that like children masturbate in in their mother's wombs we. That's because it feels good. And are you saying like an unborn baby is like what? Like, I don't. That's the true I'm original just, sin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, just like head death, head death, head death. And you know, and then my my kids were you know raised very openly, very differently. And you know, the conversation we had the discussion. There's a difference between secret and private. You don't keep secrets. If somebody tells you to keep keep the secret, you tell mom. Mm-hmm. Private is there's lots of things that we do that you know aren't about other people and you know so you know my daughter as a toddler would have her hands up her vulva while she was watching Sesame Street and I'm like that feels good I'm you know that's fine that you do that but that's something we do in our bedroom or we do in our bathroom we don't do in the middle of the living room mm-hmm. yeah, okay you know and just being able to have those conversations if more kids were encouraged. Uh, for solo sex, we would have far less problems with aggression. I mean, just fucking grumpiness in general. <laughs> My poor son grew up with, I'm like, you were in a bad mood. Why don't you go take a long, long shower? Long shower. <laughs> all the hot water that you want. But don't come back into the rest of the house until you're done being grumpy. And just being encouraged to do that as a natural expression of their sexuality. And they're far less likely to get in trouble with other things if that's a good option for 
for them. And even just the anatomy of like, what do you think that a clitoris does exactly? Like, we're actually more evolved than men if you look at it because that is just for pleasure, unlike the penis. I've got money on whoever put, whoever wrote that would know how to find the clit if they, you gave them a fucking map. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let alone what to do with it if they did find yeah. it. Yeah. Apparently they, they think it's something else entirely, which... Obviously. Uh, well, and, you know, and that's something, too, that a lot of, you know, sex coaches and body workers and, and stuff do was there's a really good documentary, and it's about circuit partners, um, and Cheryl Cohen Green is in it, and she's the one that the movie Discussions was based on. And the documentary you can find on YouTube is it's called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which is not the Steve Carell movie. Okay. But there's a scene where she's going with the guy that she's working with and she's using a book that just shows all the different it's, it's just pictures close up of vulvas and all the different ways that they can look and like that's where the clitoris is but then you know this is a full blown rose vulva and you know and just people don't get that as an education um, there's a lot of people who don't even know what vulva is like they don't understand oh. the different parts like <laughs> what they look oh, like I mean just in, and I've had people tease my, my son uses the correct word because he was talked to Okay. And they're like, they'll say vagina. He's like, do you mean the vulva? And they're yes, like, what do you call it, it then? He's like, well, why are you calling it the wrong thing? Right. You know? Because <laughs> that's what it's called. That's what well, it, it is, it, we're talking about a vulva right now, not a vagina, right? Okay. And it, it, like, you feel more comfortable with the word pussy than the correct term, you know? And like, to him, it's just so odd that people are so freaking fucked up about it. I um, agree with him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then people, and he, you know, he's 18 and he's been using the correct word all along. And he's like, what are these people's problems? Um, but they think he's weird because he knows and uses the correct language. Um, I mean, that's just so symbolic of society. You know, the 18-year-old boy calling it the right thing is weird. Right. I, I, mean, I don't understand grown men who don't even have... <laughs> don't even know like the like you mentioned all the different t- ways it can look all the different you know some people mm-hmm. have more outer labia some have, grown men who don't know that I just it baffles me like I was probably I have 30 I guess and when this finally occurred to me and it happened because I was in the middle of having sex with someone and literally he stops and he's like why does it look like that I'm like what are you talking about because what does it look like what? Yeah. I know. I stopped him like, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's dark. Why is it dark? And you have all this thing like, you've only been with white women, right? <laughs> he's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. We don't all, we're not all, you know, light and pink. And some of us have more out, <laughs> more on the outside. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> it's not broken. It's not going to I'm like, but if you keep if you keep looking at me like I'm some sort of, you know, science experiment, I'm going to kick you in the face. So I need you to yeah. stop that. You're killing the mood here. Well, and that, I mean, that's another, and of course, you know, porn can be very beneficial. A lot of men have learned about the vagina and the vulva from porn. Right. But that's why, like, you know, really good quality, you know, feminist porn kind of stuff can be really beneficial. Because then you see all the different ways mm. that the bodies can look versus sort of the traditional model where everybody has a landing strap, if, if anything at all. And right. everyone's everybody's waxed clean. Yeah. And, you know, stop asking us to do that shit because that, the ingrown hair and the itching, I mean, some women are into that and good on you, but for a lot of us, that shit is painful <laughs> and I don't need to be stuck in my crotch in public and it's not going to happen. It's, okay. It's not pretty. Don't do that. them to wax theirs first before they demand anybody like exactly and i get to do it for you oh ouch exactly <laughs> gotta pull it really slow um, aren't you you know and that's if that's the visual images that you saw that's what you respond to and that's okay it's not bad or wrong to like respond to a certain image because that's what you saw and that's sort of what you raised your penis on but it's also okay to go then there's a wide variety of experiences out there and to be open to enjoying all the ways a woman's body can present itself. Just just like for those of us who enjoy penis, you know, there's lots of different ways that penises look and curve and act and enjoy all None of them look ways. the same. They're all different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. And I know you guys all think they're like gold tips or something, but you're, you're not as special as you think you are. It's fine. I, see. And, and I, I have generally noticed that the better the penis is, the less they have to brag about it. So if you've got good dick, you should be able to it. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And and, ju- and everyone should be aware 
that when you send those unsolicited dick pics, all of our friends and our sisters see them. Just so you know. And we like to, yeah, we can be a little mean. So just be aware that that's what's going to happen. I, I, wrote a, I wrote a blog post about dick pics oh, really? a while ago. Yeah, so why do men send unsolicited dick pics? What is that about? Well, it's just, and, and I'm, I'm just reading David Lay's book um, called Ethical Porn for Dick, which is fantastic. He, he does kind of talk about the, the dick pic thing and sort of maybe some of the ideas of where it comes from. Because um, gay men do it, and it's fine. So, you know, like men are visually stimulated, and they're like, hey, I enjoyed this for myself, so why wouldn't this woman enjoy it if I send it to her? And generally speaking, like, some women are perfectly content to get it. Let us ask. Right. Like, I don't mind getting them if it's somebody that I'm talking, you know, that I I know like that. (laughs) You know? I mean, it honestly, it doesn't do anything for me, but if he enjoys taking it and sending it, fine, whatever, send it to me. Whatever. I'll humor you on this one. But, yeah, if I didn't ask or I don't know you like that, don't send it to me. I don't want to see that. And I've never heard a man complain about, you know, a man who likes men getting dick pics from another guy. In fact, I, you know, I I sat on Pride Board and would be sitting there in meetings and people would be, you know, swiping through Grindr and so I would look up and I'd be like, pick butthole, pick pick butthole. (laughs) And so it's just, it it very much, I think, is just about how dudes are wired and Mm. the understanding is we're not necessarily wired to be as excited about it as you are. My friend Mark, had he said, he's kind of like that cat that goes outside and goes bird hunting and brings you that goddamn fucking dead baby bird nobody wants nobody wants the baby bird stop bringing it in the house <laughs> he's like that's his sort of male understanding of dick pics like I have to remember this is the dead baby bird that nobody <laughs> wants in the house <laughs> dead baby bird I have found they stop sending them if you respond with oh that's cute <laughs> yes uh, what my dad taught me to say was um of course this came from my dad was like oh that's so cute is that the miniature version oh I love it <laughs> It's adorable. They have that in travel size now. Right. Is it get cold? Do you need a little hat? Yeah. <laughs> See, I, yeah, I, I'm very not, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't like porn. I don't like strip clubs, nothing like that. Cause I don't understand the appeal in looking at it if you can't touch it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, I know that makes me a little on the, you know, friends on that. But so I don't like the, the pictures. I'm like, why are you sending that to me? Either you yeah. can come over or you can't. Like, I don't need your yeah. picture. <laughs> but I really didn't want to do text sex. Right. Like, don't send me a postcard here. That's not going to do it for me. I got batteries. I'm good. It's fine. Yeah. I didn't need any help. Well, and, I mean, we're, we're super visual creatures, and if you are too, but you're like, but I want the visuals to have the follow-up. I don't right. Really look at. Otherwise, I'm just frustrated. Right. And if I'm going to have yeah. to take care of it myself, I could have done that without your help. Right. <laughs> My mind worked really, really well in that domain. I didn't need anything. Exactly. Outside. I mean, I know you you like to feel like you did something here, but you didn't. <laughs> but if it's doing something for you, and we have that kind of relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll humor on sometimes if it's somebody I'm involved with. David Lee's books, um, Ethical Porn for Dicks, was pretty much written for straight men, but it's a phenomenal book for for those of us who were just sort of interested in that. And then he also wrote a really good book called The Myth of Sex Addiction, because I get so many people that are sent to me for quote-unquote sex addiction or porn addiction, and I'm like, well, let's parse out what might be a problem behavior in this, because, I mean, and I have some people who have, you know, use a type of porn that I think isn't good for them, and so that's a different story, but generally speaking, being turned on by images is really, really normal. They show human porn to primates and zoos to get them to mate, so Mm -hmm. obviously we do this, and that's okay. Cave drawing, you know, and they were even drawn in such a way, not only were they dirty, like they were, like you you built the fire and the flicker of the flames made them look like they were moving and actually fecking. That was our first movies. Really? I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. That's some amazing art right there. Yes. And, and, and David Lay talks about that, and he uses some of those cave, a lot of those cave drives even in his book. But, you know, we, we have, we invented the dildo before we invented the wheel. Well, well priorities, damn it. <laughs> exactly. The stone, the, the sto- a stone dildo is been dated as being older than, like, the first found wheel. So, wow. obviously, this is what humans do. <laughs> It's okay. I'm going to start using that example. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I have to you look know, up his you... books. That's good. 
Well, I mean, like, look at the internet. It was created for the military-industrial complex, but it was privatized for porn. What do we use it for most? Porn. <laughs> and, you know, shoe shopping. Uh, well, I think we're about out of time, but <laughs> thank you for, for doing this for us. And can you um, tell us how people can keep up with you, your website, your book, all of that? Yeah, um, so my I've, I've published several books at this point. I'm super fancy. Um, but the, the one that I mentioned that's been a really big bestseller that a lot of people really like is called Unfuck Your Brain. If the title doesn't give it away, I really like the word fuck. <laughs> and it's not because I think Same. I'm cool, but I think fuck is a very cromulent word that helps add emphasis. And so, and I, you know, I write the way I speak. And so if that, you know, Perfect. if I offended you now, don't read my books. Um, um, I have the website, The Intimacy Doctor, and that's DR, not doctor spelled out. And that has a lot of, like, my articles and my media and my books. And and my husband is the sweet and kind and caring man who keeps up with that for me. And then my website that's more about my consulting and my private practice and stuff is Faith G. Harper. But I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as the Intimacy Doctor. And the funny story about that name is that all came from doing the TED Talk. They said, like, you need to have a social media presence. And I'm like, like, and so I started Twitter and shit just because I was doing TED and I was being a smart ass and I'm like I don't know the fucking intimacy doctor or whatever and now it's it's, it's stuck <laughs> and it works so that you know that's how you'll find me online and I'm actually my book a um, which is actually about sex and relationships which is called unimaginably enough um, unfuck your intimacy because we couldn't call it unfuck your fuck that would be confusing or brain your fuck is coming out next spring it's in the spring catalog through my publisher microcosm publishing when and they're probably thinking right now, why are you on a podcast instead of setting up your edits? Stop <laughs> around. So yeah, my next big book with them is actually about sex and intimacy and relationships and a lot of bite-sized pieces of like of talking about what we're talking about today and the stuff you're doing in general of just like, hey, this is what it means. Um, this is what being asexual means. And that might be you and that's okay. And this is what it means to be gender nonconforming and that might be you and that's okay. And this is how to, you know, navigate consent and boundaries in relationships. And this is how to talk about BDSM in relationships. And just all those little bits and pieces of adding really good quality information because there's so much misinformation out there and giving people a really good starting point to figure out what lights their brains up. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. You can contact the podcast at BrokeBrokenPodcast at gmail.com. The Broken Broken Podcast can be found on Twitter at BrokeBrokenShow on Instagram and Facebook at Broke Broken Podcast.